Young boy, you don't be bad, so women did you wrong. Young boy, you don't be bad, so women did you wrong. Alright, welcome back. It's been a while. Here we are, episode 6 of the Small Truck Campers podcast. I'm so stoked to be recording this one. I know it's been a really long time. Uh, thank you all out there for staying dedicated, continuing to check out the Instagram page and the podcast. Uh, while I was gone, I was gone for about four months, and then it took me about about a week or two to kind of get settled. Although I'm not fully settled in, I'm definitely getting there. So I uh, just got back from that work trip. Like I said, four months, limited connectivity, but it's great to see the page still going strong. And it gave me a lot of time just to kind of think about the whole podcast and the Instagram and the whole kind of community that we have and and what direction I want to take it. So that was really refreshing. And I kind of summed it up after months of thought that this platform, this community, essentially what I want it to be is a short uh, story sharing community where we can share all these cool stories about rigs, about the creators, about the people living the life, the people that are getting out there. And I just want to keep sharing those stories through the Instagram, through the podcast, and through some other cool initiatives that I think we'll have coming up here pretty soon. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on. And I mean, we hit 50,000 followers on the Instagram. That's incredible. We're at 50.5, I think, right now. So I'm just so uh, shocked and humbled by how big this community is getting and the connections that I think we're all starting to make or that um, I'm definitely seeing these connections starting to come through. A lot of cool companies out there that I, I want to interview and talk to. A lot of cool people out there just living the life, uh, doing really interesting things, using their campers like a home base, whether it's kayak and whitewater guides, uh, fire uh, journalists that go and chase forest fires, wildfires, and, and use their camper as a home base to, to write about these uh, events. Adventurers, which is just super cool. I, I've been following this guy on Instagram who lives at his camper and he was still skiing up until like a week ago up in Mammoth. Um, so I'm just c- connecting with a lot of awesome people and I can't wait to bring those stories out to you guys out there and share these stories because they're, they're really cool and they are worth sharing and they're worth listening to. So let's see, what else have we been noticing? Well, surprisingly, to my to my surprise at least, still seeing a lot of campers uh, being bought and sold regardless of the higher interest rates and I'm seeing a lot of four-wheel campers which is kind of like the benchmark I use going for like 12, 13, 14k for you know late 2000 so 2010, 12, 13, 14, 15 and then it's still hovering around like the 25, 30k mark for the newer stuff which I'm surprised because these things were bought during COVID with low interest rates so they were probably financed and I thought once interest rates shot up, they would the sales would halt, um, or at least the prices would drop. But the prices are still steady, kind of post-COVID uh, pricing is still pretty high. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, how are people buying these things? Are they paying cash? Are they financing just at a higher interest rate? So that's, that's kind of been a shocker to me because I thought for sure by now these campers would have come down in price. Uh, and... I think that they're fairly priced. You're getting a lot of bang for your buck, but I, I still think they're high, higher priced for used items. So if you've if you've bought and sold a camper in the past month or so, shoot me a DM. I'm really curious to know what you bought it, what it was listed for, 
and what you either bought or sold it for, and also the year-ish and the make and the model. Uh, I like to put together some data and just see if we can figure out, kind of start a graph going of camper prices. And I think that'd be really cool and really interesting to look at and start to analyze the market a little bit more like that. But yeah, I've been shocked. I was uh, on the boat. So yeah, for those of you who don't know, I'm in the Coast Guard and I was on a Coast Guard ship for about four months uh, on a deployment. I can't exactly say where we were, what we were doing, but I will say that there was like pretty limited connectivity, so I didn't have access to Instagram or really the internet um, f as a whole. Uh, it was it would work, but it, it was super laggy, and it just kind of wasn't really worth it. Uh, when we did pull into port, we did have connectivity, so I was able to catch up on stuff when we were in port. Um, but when we were underway. I was able to like check Craigslist and a little bit of Facebook Marketplace, even though it took forever to load the pages. And just, I was checking it a lot because there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, my downtime, I had a lot of downtime. And I, I was shocked that I still, you know, checking it that often, I, I didn't see a whole lot of deals come through that I thought were like screaming deals. And like I said, I thought with interest rates being where they're at, the camper prices would definitely be falling by now. And there'd be a lot more deals to be had. Maybe maybe won't re we won't return to the pre-COVID pricing. I don't think we will. But I was expecting at least to get close. And it, it seems like we're still at that COVID level pricing. So that's a good thing if you have a camper. I mean, the value is definitely not lost. Um, I don't know if value is being added right now. But it's a good place, I think, to park, park your money where at least it'll retain its value. So maybe that's what those people are doing that are buying the expensive campers. They're like seeing it as a spot to to park their money for a little bit rather than a bank account where it'll just depreciate that's getting more into the economic side of things which i do find fascinating about like the camper community i think it's or the campers in general i think it's just such a indicator of like the market um i've said this before a few times that i follow a lot of youtube channels about like luxury cars or newer cars and, and just the prices and sales numbers and all that stuff and it's it's just really interesting to see kind of the market and the economics behind it all so i find that cool maybe you do too so switching gears a little bit thinking been working closely with our web developers and super excited to announce that we have version two of our website coming out probably the next week or two and this is going to be a much more user-friendly interface a lot of new features are on this thing, and it's really exciting to be launching the second version of the website. If you didn't know we had a website, the link is in the bio on the Instagram. I'll put the link uh, at the bottom of this podcast notes as well. And I've been working with a team up here in San Francisco. We're approaching the website as kind of a new a new concept where I'm, I'm kind of picturing it as like a virtual farmer's market almost, where, where you roll up. To our virtual farmers market, which is on the which is our website, and you have the storefront where it's just our shop, which is, has you know our small truck campers merchandise, stickers, hats, hoodies, and I'll touch more on that a little bit later because we do have some awesome designs coming out pretty soon for some new merchandise. So, anyways, you could buy a t-shirt or I'm sorry, a sweatshirt or a hat or some stickers, you know, at, at the, the storefront, and then we also have the ability to have people buy buy and sell kind of their used or their their camping camper stuff that they bought that they don't use anymore or they never did use maybe they were building out a camper and they bought uh, extra solar panels they ended up not needing them so they have a you know you can go and sell your 
used, I don't want to say used, but your solar panels or your jackery or your rinse kit or your awning or whatever you bought for your camper that you no longer use or it's extra or you never did use. So that's that's like the trading post aspect of it. Um, so that's really cool. And I think that's a really good spot for people to, you know, if they're building out a camper or you want some more gear for your camper, it's just such a good idea to maybe not buy it off Amazon or maybe not buy it brand new, um, but maybe support the community and support someone that's selling something like that, that, that you could use. I bought and sold stuff on there already. I had some insulation um, that I sold. I had some tie downs that I sold. I had some foil camper parts that I sold and also bought a few things as well. So I think it's a really cool dynamic that I hope, you know, this peer to peer kind of farmer's market virtual setup thing kind of works. So that's the second aspect to the online store or the online kind of community place or online farmer's market, however you want to look at it. And then the third thing is we're going to start incorporating people out there that have their own maybe Etsy store or their own products that they make. And we want to be able to offer them a place to sell it through our website as well to kind of uh, organize all these sellers across the board that have their own websites or their own their own offerings and kind of offer them like that farmer's market style uh, spot online where they can go and, and set up a, a little shop within a shop. Um, and that will be specifically kind of filtered and catered through to what I think our community is looking to get or look that would be interested in, right? So I think that's just really cool that we have this virtual marketplace where you can support, you know, the, the website or the Instagram and the podcast with merchandise sales. You can support your own adventure by selling or trading or buying, you know, your own used gear or extra gear. And then thirdly, if you make something or you have your own Etsy store or you just have your own little kind of small time production thing, you can also sell it on our website and we can kind of conjugate all these things that we're into and make one centralized location rather than going to Etsy for this, that and the other, going to my website for our merchandise and then going to eBay or Craigslist for the uh to sell sell and buy used gear we're just gonna try to combine it all in one spot so i'm pretty stoked on that that's a whole new concept and all those features should be out pretty soon just obviously stay tuned to the podcast and to the instagram and and we'll be uh we'll be sharing the news when it's ready to be shared officially but that's really exciting so the community is strong we have so many followers on the instagram so many downloads of the podcast and if we can just expand on that through these community, virtual community meeting points or virtual farmers markets is kind of how I like to look at it. I think um, it's just going to keep growing out the community and keep doing what we want to do, which is share these ideas, share these stories and support each other, inspire others and um, just keep the keep the stoke going, I guess. So, so that's an update on the website and all the virtual stuff. Lots of really great stuff happening. And lots of stuff that's been in the works while I've been gone just through emails and phone calls and stuff on landlines back to uh, California to, to work on these initiatives. But I'm really excited to share that with you all. And I am looking forward to presenting it online when it's all ready. All right, so like I said, I was able to check emails and I was able to log on the Instagram when we were in port and stuff. And the main takeaway I got from that was there's just a lot of really awesome people that have amazing stories that I can't wait to bring on the show. 
and I had a spreadsheet going of all these uh, email addresses and names of people that I want to I want to bring on and share with y'all. And we're talking people that are driving to Panama, uh, not Panama, to Portugal um, in their truck camper, driving to Alaska, people that are fishing every single state uh, in America out of a out of a truck camper. Uh, like I said, people chasing wildfires to cover them for for news that are using the truck camper as a home base. Uh, extreme athletes, skiers, snowboarders, surfers, whitewater rafters, rafting people that are using their camper as a home base. Uh, backyard builders, and then new manufacturers as well. So there's just so many cool stories that are going to be shared through this podcast. And I can't wait to get that information out to you because I think we could all take something away from these people and what they've done and we can kind of use that to enrich our life and maybe inspire us and then also if people just have these stories that they're just fun to listen to i was thinking a lot about what is it what is it about the instagram that's like that's kind of caught on so well and i think it's just the fact that it's sharing someone's story and it's inspiring to see these little stories, especially if you're in the market or you have a truck camper that you've been living out of or working out of or, or kind of using. It's just so cool to connect to these like-minded people and inspire and share ideas. So if we can kind of turn that up a little notch with the podcast and with these guests, I think it's um, I think it'll be really interesting and, and have some really good conversations. And then also the marketplace is just changing. It has been changing so quickly you know, going from the big manufacturers like Lance, Arctic Fox, who else is who else is a big Bigfoot, Northern Light, these kind of staples that have been around for for forever. Um, you know, those stories are kind of dull, but now we have so many new manufacturers entering the space that are using cutting edge materials and techniques like CNC printers and um, you know composite materials to build these lightweight, strong campers. And they're creative, entrepreneurial, hardworking people, and just getting those stories out too, and kind of, you know, where they came from and what do they see in the marketplace. So, a lot of good stuff to keep sharing, and I'm uh, just really inspired by all these people I've made connections with through the podcast, and just inspired to kind of keep it going, and bring these stories to you all out there. I think it's good listening, and I think we can all take something away. So. That's kind of the, the thoughts that I've been having for the website, for the Instagram, for the podcast. And there's some other initiatives, too, that are kind of on the back burner. I don't want to share them just yet um, until it's more official. But essentially, I'm like, when I first started out the Instagram page, I was like, how is this ever going to take off? You know, And that wasn't even my goal. It was just kind of like, oh, I wonder if other people will be interested in this. And now, fast forward a few years later, it's like, I don't have enough time to pursue all these avenues I want to to keep sharing all these stories and, and showing all these pictures and doing all this stuff. So it's almost like it went from, huh, I wonder if other people like this to now I don't have enough time to do to fulfill all these avenues that I think we can. And I'm working on that. Just taking some time, but uh, excited to kind of keep that going. And lastly, I'd like to just talk about where I'm at in my journey with a truck camper and I'm excited because today oh, as of the recording of this podcast I'm actually going to go pick up a camper that I got off Craigslist and I had so much time to think about what was important to me in a camper and identified 
what I needed in my life. There's tons of different avenues you can go through, and I'm sure you've gone through this struggle or you're going through the struggle about pop-up versus hard-sided, um, you know, amenities versus bare bones, heavy versus light, all these kind of scenarios we play out in our minds about what to us would make the ultimate rig. And I've said it before that there is no perfect solution and that the best solution is the one that's good for you for right now. It's hard to plan out like five, 10 years in advance, like, oh, well, I need this in five years. I don't know. That's why you see so many rigs being bought and sold, um, you know, after a few years, maybe their needs have changed or maybe their interests have changed. And for me, it took a while because I've bought bought so many. I've had so many. I've had four wheels. I've had hard sided. I've had minimalist build outs. I've had kind of a lot of different styles to choose from. And I needed to look at where I'm at in my life and what do I need. And the things I identified that I need were essentially I need a spot to act as like a mobile and semi-permanent small truck campers HQ where I can store my merchandise. I can have the podcast uh, computer and microphone set up and also have like a just a separate area to kind of focus on on shipping and packing orders and it's just a spot to kind of focus more on the community um, mindset because right now I need to get my computer out I need to get my microphones out I need to kind of arrange for time where it's gonna be quiet around the house and that's kind of how I focus so having a spot that I can do that was important to me also one that required minimum minimum setup ie not a pop-up um, that I can just kind of go in and out of as I please. So I'm excited to announce that we will have shortly a new small truck campers recording studio and community development center. And I will share more pictures and that story on an upcoming Instagram post. And and I'm sure you guys will see it. And that's super exciting. It's taken me a really long time to figure out kind of what my needs were and what I wanted. And then lo and behold, Across came across my computer came a Craigslist ad that fitted exactly what I was looking for, and I'm uh, I'll share that story more in detail when it actually comes to fruition. I'm gonna go pick it up here shortly, but that's super exciting. I'm really pumped to have like a HQ and a spot solely dedicated to the development of this community more. So the Small Trick Campers Community Development Center, and I'll give y'all a hint. The camper brand is no longer around and they were bought by Lance. So if you can piece that together, you'll understand maybe what kind of camper it is. And I like the I like the nostalgia of kind of older campers that are no longer around. I've always liked kind of older older stuff. And it just kind of fits the bill. I was going I really wanted a, a newer four wheel camper, but the the price point was just too much for me to manage right now. And also my needs were that I needed something more more permanent, less setup. And I think that what I'm about to go get is going to fulfill those needs. So I'm super stoked. Very stoked on that. All right. So where are we at today? We're back home in the Santa Cruz Mountains recording this episode six. Beautiful day out. It's summer. I hope everyone's out there enjoying summer, camping, getting out there. Uh, going on adventures, whatever it may be. It's just so beautiful out. Uh, where I was at in the Coast Guard, it was just so foggy and cold that it's just so nice to be out here in the sun. It's almost like uh, I appreciate it way more than I... I've always appreciated it, but I just kind of double appreciate it now. 
And on today's podcast, we have a guest that I've been in conversation with almost since the beginning of Small Trek Campers. I've shared a few of his stories on our Instagram page, on our on our stories, and on posts. And uh, he's a good dude out of San Diego, California, that has been a guide in Patagonia, a guide in Iceland, and is now a guide for ecological and ecotourism to Baja, California. And he's been doing all this in a variety of truck campers, so it fits fits perfectly with our audience. And he's got some really good insight just to traveling and meeting people and outlooks that I think you all find very interesting and, and take something away. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our episode six podcast guest, Gabe Arrives from San Diego, California. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. All right. So I'm uh, finally got Gabe. Is it Arrives? How do you say it? Arrives. Yeah. Arrives. 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 Yeah. Perfect. So I was finally able to connect with Gabe. We uh, ran into some technical difficulties, but I'm so pumped we're here finally chatting officially on the Small Truck Campers podcast. Uh, Gabe, thanks for making time, man, and welcome to the show. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's stoked to, uh, I'm stoked to finally link up. I know we've been in communication via the interwebs for a while um, since Small Truck Campers was a little baby, more or less. Yeah. So yeah, it's stoked, I'm stoked to finally touch base. Yeah, man, it's great. And uh, where where are you calling from right now? So I'm calling from uh, Ramona, California. So a little oh, nice. bit east of San Diego. Yeah, out in the country where I was born and raised. Yeah. So I think uh, having you on the show is gonna be great. There's there's so much crossover with like truck campers, obviously camping, adventuring, uh, Southern California, obviously the gateway to Mexico. And I think what you've done a really good job of is kind of blending your cultural respect and your desire to like learn more through like surfing and just kind of like finding these cultures down there um where did like where did that all come from did you did you grow up in san diego did you go to mexico growing up as a kid or how, how did that mexico san diego connection all start yeah so i mean <clears throat> my first trip was down to Puerto Penasco, um, which is on the Sonoran side of the Sea of Cortez. That was probably when I was like four or five years old with my folks, um, went down there camping. But yeah, I mean, I am Mexican-American, Latino, so I do have family in Mexico. Um, so, you know, I'll go down to Chihuahua uh, to visit family. And then as far as Baja goes, I mean, you know, just being in close proximity to the peninsula through growing up, growing up in San Diego, um, you know, everything was in, within striking distance. So, yeah, growing up as a kid, uh, going on camping, surfing trips like that with my family, that's kind of how it all started, um, and then evolved from there. Uh, you know, Ramona is a very rural community, mm-hmm. and it's a similar landscape to what you have in northern Baja, at least from San Quentin North, inland. Um, it's the same eco-region, more or less, so you have a lot of that chaparral, sage, oak scrub woodlands so i felt at home you know journeying journeying south of the border um at an early age but also in ramona i mean nature is at your back doorstep right it's Mm -hmm. it's not the san diego that most people expect when they when they hear the word right um you know wide open spaces a lot of mountains a lot of areas to go hiking the desert's right there um you know i love ramona because it's a central place 
to hit a variety of different geographic regions in San Diego County. So, you know, pretty much within 50 minutes, I can be in the Anza Borrego Desert, which is yeah. part of the low, lower Colorado Desert. I could be, you know, 35 minutes surfing and another 50 minutes, you know, up in the pine oak forests up in the mountains. So it's a pretty good place to get out into nature for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I spent some time in San Diego and obviously all of the beaches there, but I think the most memorable trip I had was we took a trip out to Anzo Borrego and uh, it's just such a different environment down there. You know, you think like San Diego, the beach, like all the restaurants, all the bars right there along like PB Drive and Mission Beach and stuff, but there's so much more to San Diego. And then you have like the mountainous region where like Julian is and it's uh, definitely yeah. a cool little gateway. So you, uh, you grew up down there in... Uh, in that part of San Diego? Yeah, exactly. So born and raised. Yep, born and raised okay. remote. Yeah. Remote. So grew up doing a lot of different stuff, you know? So that's kind of like how the truck passion started for me. Well, actually it started through my dad because he was also a truck guy. Um, he was okay. really into Fords. He grew up in El Paso, Texas. So it's right on the outskirts of the Chihuahuan Desert. Um, wow. So, you know, he grew up four by four in you know, pulling people out of sand dunes, stuff like that. So, and of course I grew up with trucks at the house. So that's kind of where it, it started. Um, and then, you know, luckily we have a lot of public land near Ramona as well, which is not very common, um, for central San Diego and a lot of places really within the U S. So I was pretty fortunate to have a lot of national forest land to, you know, be able to go and rip around on at a young age and yeah, get a feel for, you know, how to drive off road pretty much, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. So, so growing up down there, what kind of got you into like camping and then eventually what led you to like, uh, let's talk about like your first, what kind of led to that first rig? I think it was an old Toyota pickup with like a pop-up, a four wheel camper pop-up. So like, yeah. So that Toyota was my first truck in high school, which I still have never letting oh, it go. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm currently, yeah, doing the a rebuild on it. Um, what year is it? It's a 1993 uh, Toyota okay. SR5. Yeah, 93 SR5 4x4 with the six-cylinder. Um, a lot of people hate on the six-cylinder. I agree it's not the most fun motor to work on, to be honest, since I'm like neck deep yeah. in it right now. It's pretty challenging, um, but they're still very reliable for sure. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, um, I had a camper shell on that, just a regular shell. So yeah, you know, just started doing trips down to the coast, sleeping at the coast, and going to Anzabrego a lot, up to Julian, the Peninsula Range Mountains. Um, and yeah, I don't really know. I think when I, so after high school, I moved to Santa Cruz, and that's oh, where cool. I first really started seeing the the pop-up campers. Um, yeah. And then I was like, I need one of these. <laughs> so, and of course, you know, in your neck of the woods, it's I, I feel like the, the small truck campers are more common than like the big like F-250s, you know, with like a, a big cab over or a big, you know, a big four wheel pop up or something. So once I saw like the mini trucks with the pop ups, I was completely sold. Like that's my ticket. What uh, just curious, like what brought you up here to the Santa Cruz area? So one of my best friends, he was going to UC Santa Cruz. Um, okay. So he was there for a year. And then, yeah, I'd seen how awesome it looked. And he was like, yeah, come up, come up, come up. So yeah, I just went for it and I yeah did a community college up there for a little bit at Cabrillo. So you're living in Santa Cruz, you got the Yoda and then 
Do you remember how you got that first camper, that four-wheel camper? Yeah, so let's see. I left Santa Cruz. This was probably early. When was this? I was probably like 23, 24. Um, and I just saw a really cheap pop-up camper on Craigslist for sale in San Clemente from oh, a, nice. a guy, a surfer there. And it was completely gutted out, just like a shell model pop-up. And he was selling it for 750 bucks. So yeah, I went up there and swooped it and, you know, threw it on. The back end was sagging a little bit, but, you know, overall it worked. So yeah, I had that for a couple of years, actually. Nice. That's crazy. It's hard to imagine that, um, that you know, you could pick those things up for 750 in decent shape when nowadays they're going for like seven or eight grand in decent shape. Oh yeah, exactly. You know, I, um, so it's 750, actually it had a, a newer canvas on it too. They swapped it out at, um. It's the other company that branched off from four wheel all terrain campers, I think. Yeah, ATC, out. I think. ATC, and then um, just had that for a couple of years. I didn't really do any like mods or anything. I didn't add like an awning or any of that. Just kept it super basic on the inside, and it was great. You know, took it down to Mexico a bunch, did a bunch of camping in the desert here in California. Um, but then yeah, I moved up to Washington, and then when I went up there, I sold that same camper for six grand. So. Huh. And they're stoked on it too. Yeah, I mean, the camper was in good good shape, but they're like, "Oh, what a steal!" <laughs> yeah, how long ago was this? Uh, this was, I think, that was twenty seventeen. Okay. Yeah, that's so funny. That's that's kind of right when I was starting to look at campers, and um, that's when the I don't say the hate like the good old days, but you know that was the days of, like the one thousand, two thousand dollar, really good shape pop up camper, um, which those days are pretty much gone unless you're really aggressive with your facebook marketplace craigslist searching which i even i am and i still can't find those deals yeah you know honestly the deals now are like the midwest um yeah. and really just like the obscure geographic geographically isolated parts of the u.s you know where it's inflation hasn't crept in regarding that kind of lifestyle like the overlanding lifestyle it's yeah. kind of just like, hey, it's a, it's a truck camper. You want it? Come get it kind of thing, you know? The or it's like out there. yard for sale sign. Those are always the gems yeah. too, you know? Just like for totally. sale, whatever. You go in there and, you know, you, you do the deal in person, you know? Yep. Run to the bank, show up with a lot of cash, and away you go. Totally. Or the uh, Craigslist ads without any photos. It's like, I, I can't figure out how to upload the pictures. You're like, oh, perfect, man. Yeah. I'll be there tomorrow morning. Yeah, and you know it's going to be in mint condition, typically. Yeah, totally. <laughs> my friend, Thanks, uh, you know, I have a joke with my buddies, um, and they're really into boats. Those are always the ads that they run for. It's the ones like no photos, just a description, no yeah. text, no spam, just call me, whatever kind of thing. Totally. And those yeah. are always the best best deals. That's typically. how you get the goods. So um, – I understand you went to Iceland uh, shortly after your Santa Cruz stint. What was that all about? What brought you to Iceland? Yeah, so, well, I'll backtrack. So the reason I was able to go to Iceland actually was because I had worked in Patagonia in Chile um, as a guide, yeah, for a a company operating in Torres del Paine National Park. So we were based out of a small town called Puerto Natales, which is in the very, very southern tip of the Americas. So that's one of the jumping off points to go to Antarctica, actually. Well, Punta Arenas wow. is, but, you know, Puerto Natales is about an hour from there. Um, 
anyway, so yeah, I got experience basically doing like working as a mountaineering guide, like class three stuff. So really it was more of like a hiking guide, but did some like technically it would be, you know, some mountaineering. So yeah, was guiding there, had the experience, you know, in a semi-polar region. Um, so then from there I was able to get the job in Iceland working for, uh, another outfit. Um, wow. yeah, I was there for, for a good while. And that was cool because it was a blend of like mountaineering. So we were glacier guiding on one of the outlet glaciers, but also it was rad because we had a whole fleet of kitted out land cruisers and Nissan patrols, diesels. And those are on like those big 40 inch balloon tires for glaciers. All, everything was custom modified on these Jeeps. Um, so we would take those Jeeps up onto the ice cap and the glaciers and the black sand beaches. So a lot of that kind of translates to what I do now, right? Like getting that experience. And even if I wasn't driving, just learning from the other local guides, my coworkers, like, you know, what lines to take, like certain techniques, like when the conditions get very critical, you know, especially when you're with clients. So that's had a lot of translation. Yeah. Over to what I'm doing now in Baja for sure. That's cool. And was it, uh, was it like the people that you were working with, was it a lot of international people or was it mostly, uh, no, it Icelanders or? No, it was all local Icelandic, um, Icelandic guides besides, um, one other guy, Javier from, from Spain. But I mean, he's a, he's an honorary Icelandic. I mean, okay. sorry, he's an honorary Icelander. Um, he's been there for years. So, wow. but besides me, and then I came fresh off the boat from San Diego, like all tan, I remember yeah. right when I stepped out of the airport terminal and they were picking me up at the airport and, you know, I see them in the rig waiting outside the airport terminal and I have my big mountaineering pack and another duffel bag. And I showed up at like 11 a.m., I think in January, and like it looked like it was midnight. And I was like, is that like the outside? Like, where's the sun, you know? Yeah. Uh, of course, there's a very minimal daylight during the winter there, right? But um. Mm-hmm. I remember stepping outside and first thing I just, I slip on some ice right on my ass No <laughs> way. All of them. and I'm sure they're like, Oh, what do we get ourselves into hiring this, this greenhorn from San Diego? Yeah. When you were there, did you said you learned some techniques? Did you learn a lot too of like how to, how to lead and guide like tour? I don't say tourists, but like clients, I'll say like, did you learn a lot? Like, I guess those skills that are, you know, you can learn like the off-roading skills, you can learn like the, the driving skills, but I feel like managing clients' expectations was is another skill. Were, were you able to pick up with any on any of those uh, opportunities oh, huge, to learn? Huge amount. Yeah, that was one of the biggest things I, I took from my experience there was, you know, risk management with, you know, clients, with people who, you know, may come from places where they've never even seen snow before or ice, you know, or they don't even need to like think critically when they step out the front door, you know, maybe they live in a a highly urban environment. Um, So you learn to kind of always be on in a sense, um, always be very present and aware of of your surroundings, but also kind of remain cool and collected, you know, even when the the conditions get get pretty intense. Um, But yeah, Yeah. mostly a lot of it came down to risk management. Right. Even like same thing with like first responders, stuff like that with guiding. It's very critical, you know, um, to have, you know, plan A, B and C in order. Right. To always be prepared for when something does go wrong. Like, you know, in the Coast Guard. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. That's a huge, a huge recipe for a success in any operation. Right. Where you're yeah. 
you're recreating in the outdoors or immersing yourselves yourself in the outdoors for sure yeah and if you can make it look like uh if things are going wrong and you can make it look natural or like nothing's going wrong then you you're doing pretty good exactly exactly so, yeah yeah i remember i remember several times out on the glacier where you know i'd have i'd have clients we'd get like kind of up onto the ice cap and then you know they'd ask me so like so you're from where again where are you from again and i'm like yeah i'm from sunny san diego yeah <laughs> and they're like oh okay so hopefully we're in good hands <laughs> out yeah there. totally you know, kind of see they're like uh do you actually know what you're doing but uh but yeah i mean luckily i was trained with with some of the best hands down guides in iceland i mean they were part of the icelandic search and rescue team so i mean they they taught me a heck of a lot besides just guiding yeah that's great and were you guys doing overnight trips out there or just like day trips or yeah just just day trips yeah so we had like a central location that was our base camp that had the cabins and the vehicles and everything um and then we had like a small staging area at the terminus of the glacier right at the foot of the glacier where we would gear everybody up with crampons and all the gear and stuff awesome yeah that's that's really cool must have been uh just such an amazing landscape i can't even imagine it i'm sure just like the mountains and the ocean it must have just been beautiful but like super awe-inspiring and also i don't know just makes you like amped up to go explore absolutely well yeah it's a it's a it's a very like primal landscape right the landscape in iceland is like is something i would envision after like these mass tectonic movements took place on our planet and like the seas were separating and the climate shifting and it's just like this raw piece of earth right that's yeah that's truly otherworldly um and then of course right when you have the union of you know the sea and these you know rugged mountainous landscapes i mean it's uh They've been, there are places unlike anywhere on the planet, right? Whether it's like the Nepali coast or the Pacific Northwest, Baja, even Iceland, right? It's like they're some of the most dramatic landscapes on the planet, in my opinion. Um, and of course, with there being ocean, there's also waves. So that nice. was, uh, I, I definitely surfed heaps. Um, really? Was, yeah, and, and scored a lot of really good empty waves. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, super it's cool. Like a, it's like a lot of those actually, some of the setups were similar to Baja. Um, several were like very similar to some of the East Cape waves. Okay. Um, and there's one wave um, on this black sand beach near our base that was pretty similar to Trussell's. Like a really, really sweeping cobble point um, that had a great right and a left. So, What was the surf scene like out there when you were there? <clears throat> so at the time I was there... There's probably like 20 surfers, roughly, like like actual like consistent surfers on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that point, I think Iceland had a population of like 250,000 people or so. Um, but I remember meeting one woman um, at this one break I was surfing, and, you know, she paddled out. I was out there. Nice local gal. And, um, and she told me before she left, she was like, you need to get on the our surfers Facebook group. Uh-huh. So she added me to the group afterwards. And yeah, it was literally like all of them on the island were all on this Facebook group. And, you know, we were separated by maybe five or six hours drive, some of us. 
but whenever there's a swell anywhere it'd be like just you know yeah. like the like yeah like the um everyone's hopping on like trying to early, coordinate yeah like instant messenger you know kind of just like da, 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 like shooting little yeah. little <laughs> notes to each other little trip reports and it's it's the neatest thing because there it's like you want to share these moments with other people right like you want to share the experience of surfing with others and not have it be just about me of course which is easy of course when you know you have lineups that are essentially empty right so yeah wow um, it it was nice to see the other side of of surfing culture i think like the more righteous side of of searching surfing culture present there yeah I, I mean, when I was up in, like, Washington, Oregon area, uh, there was some main breaks, but there was a lot of spots where it was more like that, where you're kind of, like, waiting for other people to show up to paddle out with. Yeah. And there's not really surfers in some of those parts. It's, like, more, like, people that surf. So, like, they're normal people that surf. They're not, like, surfers. It's kind of a difference. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was just in Alaska, and uh, kind of the exact same thing, you know? Um you go to the beach and you're waiting for someone else to show up and paddle out. And if you do paddle out and there's people already out there, there's like a 99.99 chance, you know, them. And it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely the other side of the, the yin to the yang of the crowded kind of California scene that, um, surfing's, you know, comes to mind when you think of it here. So it's really cool. You got to experience that, especially in such a, uh, like alien landscape, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How was your, how was your time up in Alaska? Were you able to surf some pretty good waves? Yeah, we, I've surfed up there uh, over the past two times I've been up there, and I've been up there for a few months each time. Uh, I've just surfed twice in Kodiak. Um, there's actually some really good surf in Kodiak. It's just a matter of getting there, and uh, we had a yeah. really fun session at this beach break, me and my good friend. It was, like, magical, just huge snowballs, like, huge snowflakes the size of softballs falling, no wind, and, like, four- to five-foot beach break. It was uh, it was pretty cool, and then I was up there on the ship for quite a while, and just every time we'd go near an island, I'd have binoculars out just looking for something. And there's, I don't want to give it away, but there is some incredible potential up there, and oh, yeah. I think for Americans, it's going to be like maybe the new Hawaii or the new Indonesia in in five to ten years. There's just so, so much opportunity that's just starting to uh, show its face. Island X is a good surf movie that that brings to light some good spots up there. The difficult thing is it's just really hard to get to, and it's very weather-dependent. Um, but if you can get there somehow and be there and you bring a board, you'll probably score. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really similar to Iceland. Like, the setups are there. Again, even the energy's there. But it's about, right, like, the organization of the energy yeah. in totally. cohesion with the conditions, right? So I have so many friends hit me up, like, oh, I'm going to Iceland. Like, should I bring a board? Da-da-da. It's like... It's one of those places you have to be there for a while to kind of figure it out and then also oh, yeah. get the stars to align, right? And, like, obviously with you, with your months up there, that's, like, when you have the time, eventually it'll align for you. But exactly. for a strike mission, it can be hard. Very um, I was talking to uh, one of my best friends. Like He came down to the East Cape to visit me for a quick strike mission, and he didn't plan it at all. I mean, he got the go-ahead through his wife, which is awesome. He has a newborn <laughs> yeah. kid, right? So oh, she's wow. like, you need, you need to get out of here. So yeah, he took off for five days, come visit me. And every other trip him and I have had together in Mexico, we've always gotten skunked for surf. Like, but of course it's those trips, you know, they've been planned out like four or five, mm-hmm. six months in advance. You're committed to it and you go. 
And yeah, we surfed this one point. It was probably a foot overhead. Just perfect. And uh, I just remember seeing him so psyched getting out of the water with the biggest smile. Like, it all finally aligned for him. But he was like, yeah, like, if you plan a trip, you're never going to score. It's like, yeah. sometimes you have to be footloose. Well, totally. You have to be footloose, but you have to have the privilege, right, to yeah. sometimes just be able and dip off really quick, you know, which is hard I'm for right. a lot of people, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very hard. And uh, set up your life in a way where you can do that either now or one day is kind of the goal. So, yeah. Uh, shout out to everyone out there who's, whose goal is to be time rich. Yes. So uh, you hit up, you're in Iceland for a bit and then you move back to San Diego. Yep. Yeah. Iceland and I was back in San Diego. And then yeah, I was back in San Diego doing refrigeration pipe fitting. So oh, I wow. was a like commercial industrial, yeah, refrigeration pipe fitter. Um, I got into that trade through my father. Um, yeah, he had, he's been a pipe fitter, refrigeration pipe fitter, like 40 years. He's retired now. Um, but I had, you know, exposure to that trade at super early age. I'd go to work with him in the summer. And I remember going with him to uh, jobs in Costa Rica when he was starting wow. up the Costco's down there when I was like nine. No way. So that's part of like, I got that exposure to travel super early, but then also the exposure to like a trade, like a vocation, like the blue collar style of life. Um, so, you know, luckily I had that to fall back on, you know, when I wasn't guiding, I could come back and, and work and, and make some money to kind of fuel the next adventure. Um, the thing yeah. with that trade though, it's like, you know, when a, a massive industrial commercial size walk-in cooler or walk-in freezer goes down with, you know, $10 million of product in it, there's no like wait for tomorrow. So like when we're on call in the summer, when we would be on call, we would easily work like 90 hour weeks and yeah, we'd be on call 24 hour call for seven days straight. Um, so, you know, people in that trade, their bodies pay the price for sure. Um, and at times families, right? Like they're gone a lot, you know what I mean? And making really good money, but then you have the money, you don't have the time. And then when you have the time, yep. your body's beat up or you're tired. So yeah, I just kind of realized like the, seeing the culture from my own worldview of like traveling and, and seeing other types of living, I was like, I have a deep value and appreciation for it, but it's not the life that I'm going to live, you know? Mm -hmm. So then I, yeah, branched out from that. And then I worked at a overlanding shop up in the Northwest, up in Portland for a little bit, uh, mule expeditions. So yeah, we were doing the flatbed trays and the camper, you know, customization and all that kind of stuff, suspension. Um, and again, there I was like, that's right. You were building out those, uh, those rigs, right? Yeah. I was building those Remember for a while. Like there was like, what, yeah. two years or three years. And, uh, and were you roommates with Cyrus Sutton? Yeah, I was. Yeah. That's so cool. Housemates with Cy Cyrus. Yeah. 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 So that was a, a whole other experience, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, building these trucks, I was realizing like, a, like, it seems like a lot of these people aren't really going anywhere, really. Yeah, they're just like the new, uh, they're yeah, replacing the Corvette in the driveway. Yeah, it, kind of, it was kind of like that, and this is from a non-judgmental, you know, point of view, just kind of like a, a cultural or social analysis, right? 
no judgment at all. Like if people are into something and that's what they want, I mean, that that's fine. You know, as long as you're a good person. Right. But, um, I was just like, I don't know. I felt weird kind of being involved with this. And then there's always like so much talk about like, Oh, Baja. And like, where are you camping? Like, where are your spots in Baja and all this stuff? And I was always kind of quiet about it. You know what I mean? Cause I was just curious. I was almost like the fly on the wall, just kind of listening to this culture. Um, but then also just seeing the people like working there, I was like, no one ever leaves. You know what I mean? Like the owners would leave and they're super rad. Like some of my favorite people on the earth, hands down and they get after it down on Baja for sure, but they're the owners so they can. Right. But like the people working in the shop and like, you know, wrenching on the campers and stuff. I was like, I think, I don't know. I mean, personally I'll be straight up. Like it seemed whack, you know, like, it's like building a boat and never being able to go out to sea yourself. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. Of course, if you love the craft and like you love, you know, building and, and using your like, you know, technical aptitude to like troubleshoot and build things. I think it's awesome. But for me, I was like, nah, like I'm the guy who's out there. You know what I mean? I'm not the guy who's in the shop. Like I'm the guy who's out there. I know the stuff that's in the shop and how it works you know, how it can be set up to be functional in these places because I've been to these places myself and I know hundred percent like what you need and what you don't, you know, mm-hmm. at least for my own personal use, right? Like I don't need a bunch of square lights. You know what I mean? Like I don't need that. Like I don't need massive tires either. Like I don't, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that it's kind of like low rider culture in a sense. It's like, it's more about the looks, right? I mean, culturally, totally. I think low rider culture is, sicker but like yeah it's more about the mods and like the looks right than like the functionality of a lot of the stuff you know and for me like from guiding right it's like like light on your feet is efficiency right and efficiency equals success in a lot of these situations so like i don't want to be like hunkered down with all this extra shit i mean it just i just don't and of course i have a hallmark camper now which is a pretty hefty unit but I don't like have extra modifications on anything, you know, I just have a truck, the camper and I go have fun End the story, you know, I don't need to like overcomplicate stuff. I dig that. And that's a really good point. You know, the designing for the idea versus designing for what you'll encounter, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think our community really digs the minimalistic or like, DIY or kind of like only what you need um, kind of aspect where a lot of people and I'm gonna hate on sprinter vans for a little bit more um, but just getting all the accessories you know like the accessories yes. to like you said overcomplicate like it's overcomplicating the mission you know yeah um, what are some of the stuff that you were witnessing at at that uh, place like what are some of the accessories you, you would see people get that you're just like, no, that's not useful. That's not useful. That's not useful. Just like, dude, like the main thing, bro, straight up. The one thing now I could think of off the straight off the head, just all these like bolt on like the Molly panels and all these like tactical, like funky looking brackets and stuff to like clip in your Jerry can and like put your little mini shovel and all this stuff. It's like, I don't get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, 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 I partially sure like freeing up space, but it's probably because you don't have space on the inside because it's full of extra shit. You don't need to, you know? Yeah. It's like, I don't know. Like, um, 
Oh, dude, I'm forgetting his name. He's uh, I'm gonna look him up right now. He builds a he does, he builds Land Cruisers. Um, he does like the pop tops. He does the pop top mm. uh, Land Cruisers. Like the troopy stuff. Yeah, and uh, really rad dude. I've only communicated with him through Instagram. Um, but like the Land Cruisers he builds out, they're sick, dude. They're just like so clean, like on the outside. There's not like all this extra junk freaking bolted into it. Just have like a spare tire on the back, like a tire swing out, and that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Inside, he builds like those really clean slide outs with like the fridge. You have like a bed and the pop top, and you got like a sink or whatever. But like, I love, I love his style. It's like super clean and and minimal, you know. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, people probably see my camper and they're like, "Oh, like you're a total hypocrite." But I mean, I don't know. Kinda, I guess. I just, you know, I just bought it because it was cheap, and I chucked it on the truck. You know what I mean? If yeah. I had something else that was, you know, simple. I'd be, I'd be stoked. And to be honest, I was talking to my other buddy yesterday about like, oh, I just want to go back to like a pickup truck with like a cooler and a tent in a bag. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. I, I love simple. that. I love it. Yeah. You can go anywhere, right? Like, just set up the tent, sleep on the ground. Like, I'm not gonna, you know have like a ladder rack with you know steel mesh on the top and then set my tent up on top of that like just to be on yeah. top of the rig it's like who cares just i don't know yeah just go have fun yeah, you gonna get, i call that uh earth your earth top tent you know yeah just goes right <laughs> on the earth exactly exactly but, yeah it's interesting and you brought up a good point too that a lot of the magic of like mexico is lost when your rig is like so dialed or kind of dialed to where like oh you get a flat tire like oh you have a you know pneumatic airbag that jacks it up you can swap out your tire you're good to go and i feel like you know that might have been a bad example but um you lose out on some of the culture when you're just kind of passing through not maybe facing a breakdown or getting stuck or haven't helped somebody else out you know because you're just on your point a to point b mission absolutely and it's funny because i've even i've experienced kind of like a sidebar but like i've even experienced like being like broken down or even like when my camper flew off my truck last year when i almost got in that accident and like yeah i at that time i had a big squad of like four built out overlanding rigs just drive right past me and they're like staring at me driving like 15 miles an hour like looking at me like scared kind of like what the hell happened but also like we're not going to stop and help this guy because it's like maybe too risky or like too much of an inconvenience and so that kind of flipped the script for me i mean of course most people are generally like out to help each other but i mean i had seen they had like all the equipment like they're so dialed they had like two winches i mean everything like they could have completely helped me out like all the stuff i needed to be helped in that situation like they're strapped to the gills and they just kept cruising you know, because again, it's like that makes you kind of more on that that point A to B mission. Yeah, I mean, not in a sense. That was more like a an individual kind of thing, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, some of the best connections I've had in Baja have been, you know, when I have something go wrong. And then, yeah, I have to like roll up to a ranch or go up to like a you know fishing camp or you know a small little pueblo or whatever. And yeah, go around asking someone for help. You know what I mean? 
And typically I end up hanging out with them in the evening, like having dinner, whatever, you know, sharing some beers on the beach or something. But it's always those serendipitous moments in my eyes that bring so much value to travel, you know, when you're actually able to like communicate, you're actually able to connect with the, you know, the outer world outside of your own bubble, you know, outside of your own like self-contained escape pod, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, so you leave Iceland, you're back in San Diego, you're doing some pipe fitting, you're back up in Portland or you move to Portland. You're starting to do these, uh, really high end build outs. And this is all before COVID before like the van, I don't say van life before the, uh, before like the craze, right. It's like the early adopters of like the overlanding scene for, in terms of what we're talking about, obviously overlanding has been around for, I guess, since cars were invented, um, before overlanding has been around since you're right. Wagons. Yeah, even before that, man, like Genghis Khan, dude. I mean, OG, yeah. OG right? I mean, if, the elephant. If, if if Genghis Khan was an overlander today, he would for sure be driving a Hilux, no doubt about yeah. it. <laughs> no joke, dude. But totally. he'd be doing it. But he'd be doing it Baja style. He'd have his horse in the bed of the Hilux, but he would be oh. mashing across. He'd be going across the Mongolian steppe for sure. Dang. And, then he'd park and then get the horse out of there and then he'd go raid the villages. Yeah, we need a <laughs> we turn it into a movie or something. <laughs> so what um let's talk about after Mule Outfitters, like what was what were you kind of doing after that? <clears throat> so after that, moved back down to San Diego. Um and it was right around when I left Mule. Well, I was actually fired, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway so like yeah i got fired like maybe like two months before covid and then covid hit and i was like oh this is excellent timing <laughs> yeah so then i was kind of jamming on the passion project right of agave expeditions so you know this has been something that <clears throat> i've kind of had on my trajectory for probably the last like 13 or 12 years um not specifically like you know 13 years ago, I was like, I'm going to start a, you know, a natural history expedition company in, in Mexico, but just kind of like my lifestyle, my interests, my passions were all leading towards that, that point. Um, so yeah, you know, once I had the free time, I was unemployed. I was like, you know, I'm going to get this project going. So yeah, I made the website and slowly just started doing more recon missions down there. Um, you know, working on relationships and business partnerships with, with local guides in Baja too, to partner up with, um, on our trips. And yeah, I mean, it was like two years heavy of just going up and down the peninsula, doing the, the scouting, doing the field work, basically, you know, like on the ground, going from region to region and not even really like deciding which regions I liked and which I didn't, but I was trying to reach like a point of mastery of the understanding the peninsula. Right. And like, it's, it's ecosystems, the ecology, the geography, the culture, history, and try to be able to like, yeah, create this, you know, tapestry of, of, of different influences that I could combine into a form of, of tourism, you know, into a form of, yeah, natural history, cultural, you know, geologic tours in a sense, like geotourism, all this stuff kind of meshed into one thing. Um, so yeah, it was a lot, a lot of miles. 
yeah. a lot of hard miles for sure. And uh, we'll get we'll get into uh, Agave Expeditions, but what what kind of rig were you doing all those miles in? Did you have the F two fifty by now? <clears throat> um, now it's towards the end. At that point, um, I was using my nineteen ninety three Toyota with the camper shell. Okay. So I got got rid of the pop top. So I was light on my feet. So I had that camper shell on there. I think, in my personal opinion, there's no better truck or vehicle to do Baja in than a Toyota pickup, hands down, because they're lightweight, they're easy to fix, reliable. But also the thing is that parts are so readily available and they're just such popular trucks in Mexico as well that even if you're in like one of these super remote little towns, villages, there's always going to be some local mechanic there who is savvy with either the 22R, the 22RE, or the 3VZE, hands down. So that's why I would choose that and also because they're really light as well so yeah. you know driving on the sand dunes driving on the beach you know there's not a lot of wear and tear on the rig you know when you're on these super gnarly washboards because they're lighter you know it's yeah. way different than dr- driving a three-quarter or one ton solid axle you know what i mean because obviously all that impact just eventually translates through the drivetrain you know chews up bearings and cv joints and you know loosens up bolts and stuff like that so yeah i'd say it's probably the best in my unbiased opinion as a Toyota maniac. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I had that one and then I was also using a, a 2005 Toyota Tundra, um, the 4.7 V8. Nice. Um, number two, I'd probably say that truck is probably the, honestly, they're honestly tied for first because, you know, that truck has a bigger power plant, has the V8. Um, it's actually just as big I think, or it's near the same size as like the new Tacomas, right? Those first gen Tundras are pretty small. They're pretty narrow, but they have that big power plant, you know? So that's another really good truck to have down there because you have that extra horsepower for the deep, the deep sand and stuff like that. And also for passing people on the highway in critical spots where you need to get around and, you know, be a little more aggressive with your driving. Um, Obviously in a, you know, controlled way, but, you know, sometimes driving down there, it pays off to be a little more aggressive for sure at times. Cause it'll eventually keep you out of a bad situation, you know? Yeah. So, you know, regarding passing semis and stuff like that. So yeah, I'd say those two trucks are the best ones in my opinion, probably, but also, yeah, those are the ones I was using. Yeah. Yeah. Tested tried and tested yeah, tried and tested and now it's i'm stoked because i see so many first gen tundras down there now um yeah i know yeah my buddy basil you know basil's garage down here in in san diego yep. but he's been super he's a big advocate of those first gens and yeah for obvious reasons and he's doing some really badass builds but um yeah 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 seen a lot of those in baja though for sure the the tundras and the tacomas yeah yeah for for good reason i think you hit some good points um and I'll, i do want to talk a little bit more more about rigs in a sec uh but let's let's talk about baja agave so what is like the missions what is it first off what is the mission statement and like what can a customer expect to get out of a trip or what do you want to show them 
you so, know, climb. So, yeah, I mean, Agave Expeditions, um, I operate natural history expeditions in Baja, California, <clears throat> using 4x4 vehicles. I do not rent 4x4 vehicles. I have my own, like, overlanding, right, my camper. That's kind of like our, our base vehicles. Um, so one of my main focuses is leading natural history caravans through the Baja, California Peninsula. So, you know, if you're somebody who has been to Baja before, or you haven't been down to Baja before, but you want to learn more, you want this to be an educative trip, not just this four-wheel drive rally, you know, surfing and just drinking beer and having a fun time. If you actually want to learn about this, you know, geographic region that's, you know, rich in cultural, biologic, historical heritage, um, then that's that's kind of my, my ethos. Um, and incorporating, of course, like the adventure sports. So like surfing, a lot of hiking, go up to ranches. So that's kind of part of like the cultural tourism. Um, you know, we go look at indigenous cave art. We go with local guides out on mules. Um, and we check out a lot of the Gulf Islands as well um, with other local guides who are based in those areas. So yeah, that's pretty much it. So yeah, what can you expect? I mean... <clears throat> You can expect A, a lot of hiking. You can expect B, off-road driving, of course. C, a lot of learning. Um, you know, it depends on what they're, the group's into, right? I mean, I have some groups and they're very into wildlife. So we'll do a lot of like kind of like semi like wildlife safaris. Those, you know, I, I always hire a local guide regardless of the region. A, to support the, you know, the culture and the economy. But B, also because they know a lifetime more than I ever will, right? Because they are born in this landscape. They're immersed in this landscape. You know, their their heritage, right, stems from this landscape, you know, whether they're, you know, fishermen, you know, transitioning to, you know, marine safari guides or, you know, whether they're ranchers, you know, who used to be traditionally running cattle and and goats up in the mountains and you know now they're guiding um to you know native cave art sites and things like that and they're more like naturalist guides so yeah i kind of try to incorporate a little bit of everything um but also not be like a jack of all trades master of none but kind of like a jack of all all trades but also like a kind of master or we like work with the masters of the trades you know yeah to create that's, a, that's really a, exciting yeah try to create a pretty robust experience yeah yeah how, that's awesome how many how many trips have you led uh about like you know a couple trips 10 trips five, i'm just curious how many trips so you, far you've i've probably now. done probably about 12 trips oh wow yeah i've done about 12 trips yeah and actually more but those are the other trips i've done have been have been more in the localized region. So those trips have been like maybe a three or five day trip, you know, let's say like in the Cape region around the mountains of, of, you know, like near San Jose del Cabo and Los Cabos, you know, La Paz kind of area. Um, and then around Loreto too, and uh, Tres Virgenes region. So yeah, those trips, but as far as like the big caravans, yeah, I've done a handful of those. Yeah. Well, more than a handful. Awesome. Yeah. What? What kind of uh, rig is required or what kind of rig do people have that sign up for these trips? 
so what kind of rig is required <clears throat> to come on my trips you need four wheels two seats a gas a brake pedal and a steering wheel <laughs> that's it awesome no, i'll take I mean, my Prius. for real you could take your prius and we get out there dude we tear down the tires and dude here's the thing <clears throat> it's not about the biggest thing is about what's between your ears you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. about like having critical thinking you know it's about knowing how to drive in these conditions or being like willing and like having the courage for some people to you know want to learn how to drive right and maybe like sand or sand dunes and stuff like that maybe they've never done it but if you have the courage if you have the curiosity where you want to learn like you can there's no big gate once you get to Tijuana that says you know oh four by four overland only you know what I mean like it's a bunch of bs dude like I went down to the tip of Baja with a woman and her daughter and they had a front wheel drive two-wheel drive um ford transit you know and it did great and yeah i aired down her tires to like 20 pounds and she was like ripping up and down the beach like a mad woman going like 50 like completely like it was the one of the it looked like it was one of the, like the coolest things she'd ever done you know and she was driving right past people and like these earth roamers and all this stuff on the beach and they're just looking at her like what's going on you know i love and, it dude that's so cool it's like anyone can come and I get these messages all the time. Like, Oh, like, do you think my rig can make it and all this stuff? It's like a, there's only a handful of actual trails. Yeah. Like off the trails in Baja trails. I mean like the Rubicon trail where it's meant for a rock crawler ranchers and fishermen don't use trails. Ranchers and fishermen in Baja use roads. All these like gnarly four by four overland routes they're not that, dude. They're just freaking rural ranching roads on a helos or fishing roads on a helos. A helos are public land in Mexico. They're public, right? So they're created to, you know, allow people in these rural areas their land grants to allow these people in rural areas to work the land and harvest natural resources to be able to generate an economy for themselves, right? This happened after the Mexican Revolution. I'm going on a tangent because I'm my gears are gone. But anyway, but anyway, they're not trails. So stop calling them trails, dude. They're all roads. Someone's gonna come down that trail in a literally an 88 Corolla with bald tires, and there's gonna be eight guys in there. And then they're gonna drive onto the beach, and then they're gonna get into a Toyota pickup that literally is just a chassis and like a spring with like it's like a seat with springs sticking out of it. The floorboards are rusted through and they're going to go launch a ponga and like the gnarliest surf, you know? So it's like, it's this whole romanticized idea. I think a lot of it to try to like make us, I don't know. I don't want to go too into it, but anyway, it's like, you don't need anything gnarly to go to Baja. That's a, that's a complete fallacy. You know, of course be responsible, like where you go and conditions and all that. But I mean, you know, to go down to Baja and explore and really get out there. I mean, there are there are a lot of four by four there are, sorry there are a lot of vehicles that are not four wheel drive that aren't lifted that can still make it out to a lot of these places because I've seen them firsthand you know yeah yeah so, that kind of goes back to building out these rigs up in Oregon for 
yeah, yeah like these for for the gnarliest idea of what's to come you know and i, I think a lot back to i read a book a while ago i, I mentioned on the podcast about people leaving the east coast to go to california during the gold rush and they would buy their wagons they would tr they would sell everything buy their wagons with their mule and their oxen and stuff and just have the most insane like like things on them like you know a dish drying rack and like pots and pans and like a huge uh like chest for all their summer clothes and winter clothes and all these amenities you know and there's a part uh in these books where they they make it like past the mississippi and people literally just describe like a yard sale type setting because there's so much just stuff that these people eject that they're like oh i didn't i didn't need this like it just wait get rid of it i don't need this wait just get rid of it you know because they they think they need all these things but they're just like all we need is like the wagon a couple oxen and some like flour tobacco and bacon and we're gonna get there you know so there's i think as humans obviously we want to plan things out but we have this like romanticized version of being capable in almost any situation and planning for almost any situation with the winches the ditch lights um the hammock like thing that goes on the bumper so you can like line your hammock on your truck when you're at the beach i don't know if you've seen that uh I've seen, but you, yeah. Oh, yeah you realize like like you said earlier all you need is like a truck or not even a truck but all you need is really a tent and just kind of reminding people that there are so much there's so much fun to be had with just the basics just kind of get up and go and a lot of people now i'm going on a tangent a lot of no, people that go on the tangent <laughs> a lot of people that reach out to me uh on the instagram are like hey we just got this rig we had like three days to clean it out and paint it up and then we went on like a cross-country trip and it was the funnest thing we ever had like no no bells and whistles just bare bones and it reminds me of um that group on instagram like bound for nowhere that uh that lady and her boyfriend i think owen and mac yeah. or something yeah where they spent like a couple months redoing a four by four sun raider they did it up super well and um they took it on like a trip and they were like you know what this thing is just not what we want so they went out and bought a toyota uh, pickup truck tacoma with a camper shell yeah and they spent a summer in that and like this is all we need this is so much fun like it's it's great so like for me like one of my best friends He's a paramedic, right? And we talk all the time about like medical emergencies, stuff like that, like your trauma kit, tourniquets, et cetera, being overprepared in the places that weren't being overprepared, like having mm. a, a solid first aid kit, right? Or like having a wilderness first responder, like, you know, what happens if someone gets, you know, a massive laceration from a fin surfing or, you know, they step on a huge piece of glass or get a really gnarly puncture, you know, something like that, how to stop bleeding, how to pack wounds, for my trips, it's like, yeah, I'm overprepared, but, you know, I have three trauma kits. You know, I have tourniquets. I have, you know, all quick clot. I have all sorts of stuff. And So you, you have family down there in Mexico uh, still? So, okay. yeah, I was born in the U.S. Um, my family, they are Mexican-American and Mexican. I have also family in Chihuahua, um, Ciudad Juarez, which is on the border of El Paso, Texas, um, binational region as well, similar to San Diego. So yeah, but yeah, I speak Spanish. Yeah, I mean, it's not perfect, but I speak Spanish. Um, yeah, it's interesting being, <clears throat> not interesting. I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, being A, growing up in San Diego, right? It's a, a trans-border region. So it's kind of like a little bit of TJ, a little bit of San Diego, you know, once you get closer to like South County. Um, yeah. 
but even growing up in Ramona, you know, had a lot of, of, of friends who were Mexican, Latino. And yeah, same thing with them. You know, they'd have family in TJ and Sonata. They go back and forth. You know, I had experienced the same going to El Paso and, you know, have all my, my relatives, you know, from, from Chihuahua over there. And, you know, they're all speaking Spanish. But it's interesting because, you know, being Latino, like Mexican-American, it's like the last like six years, I probably like felt more closer to my Mexican side for sure or longer. And I think that kind of happened once I moved away and maybe experienced, I don't know. I mean, when I moved to, when I moved to, to Washington, it was the first time I had ever felt like people were prejudiced. You know what I mean? I lived in a very, very rural area in Washington and yeah, I had some people like yell some, you know, racial epithets at me, you know, on different occasions. So it was at that point, I was like, this is very interesting, you know, like, where, where am I? Where do I fit? You know, like, where do I fit? What culture? And then, you know, I, I've, I've had moments in, in Baja where, like, in a joking manner, I've had, you know, friends or whatever down there, and they're like, nah, pues no, eres gringo, you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like, so then they're like, oh, in my eyes, I'm a gringo, or in their eyes, like, I'm kind of, like, gringo-ish, but then on this side, I'm like more Mexican. So yeah, it's interesting um, as far as like how you identify, right? And totally. for me now, I'm kind of like, it's cool because as like, as a Latino, it's like, I feel the power to be able to just decide who I want to be. Of course, we all have that, of course. But for me, like being kind of like from this, this binational area, kind of with binational heritage, um, yeah, I, I do feel like it's kind of up to me to choose, right? Like, what part of my culture do I do I sit with? What part of my culture do I really, you know, recognize and acknowledge more, right? So, you know, that was a big driving force for my immersive experiences in Baja was to actually almost like a like a vision quest, right? Like, who am I? Like, who is yeah. this? What is this part of my culture? that I know, you know, is like in my DNA, it's in my blood, it's in my spirit. But yet, I I felt so disconnected from it at times being in the US. And so another journey into the peninsula was like, not a just a, a, a physical journey and exploration, but a personal exploration of self and identity and culture. So I think that's one of the big driving factors behind me, like, really going further like into the ranchos like into the ranches like you know living there for you know a month or whatever like spending every day with these ranchers or you know fishermen on the coast like seeing how they live it's like there are bits and pieces of that that were part of my own culture you know maybe hundreds of years back so it's just part of me discovering my own personal roots in a sense yeah no absolutely that's 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 cool you can tie your passion, your history, your family, uh, and like what you're good at all together into one, yeah. essentially one, one kind of thing. So that's, that's great. Um, when, when's your next trip? Where, where are you guys going? So my and next trip, leaving? yeah, it's November. We leave November 1st. <clears throat> it's the 1st through the 14th and we're doing a, a drive to Cabo and back to San Diego. So it's a round Sweet. trip. So it's a, the full peninsula experience. Yeah. Sounds super fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to spend a couple, 
probably like two nights and probably two or three nights in some very key regions um, that I, I think demonstrate the the biodiversity and kind of like the geographic cultural richness of the peninsula as a whole. Um, so yeah, a spot in central Baja and then a spot in the Southern Cape region also. Yeah. That's, that's exciting. How, how do you, um, how can people find out more about your company or these upcoming trips and, and just kind of more about what you got going on? So yeah, obviously like active on Instagram. Um, lately it's kind of been like my biggest driver for, for you know generating interest on trips um then i have a website as well um i was doing a blog on the website but that like was getting probably like three views a month or something like that so i i kind of backed off on that and i just do more on on instagram mostly but yeah i have my website too agave expeditions um and you can get a general rundown like you've seen on my instagram i i try not to just like advertise trips you know i try to do more like some educative stuff and also just like storytelling like about my experience some things yeah. are personal some things aren't you know i don't like to just like ramble off facts all the time because that gets really old for people you know so yeah i like to mix it up and i just love writing and telling stories too so absolutely yeah. that's cool and uh before you do go i you know, every once in a while when we do post something on your behalf, because um, I like what you're doing, I promote what, what you got going on. You know, there are the, a few of those people that come back to me and say, you know, this guy's blowing up Mexico. It's a sacred place. You know, you should be capitalizing on, you know, the experience. And I just want to get kind of your take on, on some of those people, um, the, the, some of those comments and kind of what you make of it especially after hearing about your, your ties to the land culturally and with, with your, your history and your family. Well, A, I'll be completely straight up. A, I already know that's all coming from white people. And B, it's like, dude, that's such a freaking, I can go on. Like I could do a whole podcast on this, which I'm gonna with the homie who's actually, so he is a documentary photographer in Baja, but he's also very adamant about like Mexican cultural heritage in the realm of surfing, my homie Jesus. Um, so I'll be chiming in with him and I'll let him rap about this. But number two, that's just a completely colonist form of, of viewing Baja and surfing, right? It's like, so I'm going to go down to Baja and I'm going to get my waves. This is my place. No one else's even though I'm not of Mexican of Mexican descent, I'm not a Mexican national, but yet I'm going to stake my own claim on this landscape because this experience is for me without even interacting, right, with actual local communities. How are you engaging with local communities? Are you just going into town after a good surf session at the wall and buying a pack of tortillas and like 12 tortas? You know what I mean? Like, you can do a hell of a lot more than that if you really apply yourself. But that's the easy way to just pat yourself on the back and go home saying, oh, yeah, you know, I, I stoked out this this local guy on the side of the road. I bought four tamales or whatever. It's like it, it goes deeper yeah. than that. You know what I mean? And my whole thing is like, A, I don't list spots like and B, these spots aren't any of ours. Right. Like they belong to the communities that inhabit these regions, you know, it's like, we're, we're the interlopers, myself included, you know? So it's like, yeah. when I go down there taking these people on trips where it's like, I don't even really do like core surf trips anyways. That's like, 
that's like the cherry on top of like the whole banana split. You know what I mean? That's just like the little aspect of it. But it's like, yeah, I mean, there's just, the world is so big and yeah, I think people and surfers especially get extremely territorial over these spots. Right. And it's like, it's a total like colonist form of, just absorbing a landscape that does not even belong to you you know what i mean and it's like if you want to search hard enough in baja you will find waves with no one around and you know people say oh the golden age in baja is over for surfing dude that's a freaking cop out and that's just a lazy way of viewing it you know what i mean that's just being mentally weak dude straight up I have friends who go down there and they score the sickest waves season after season and they have their spots dialed. You know what I mean? And it's like that dream is still alive and well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because I've talked about this subject with a lot of Mexican locals, a lot of these breaks and they say that they reflect the similar sentiment as myself. It's like, yeah, you have, you know, a lot of gringos coming down here, <clears throat> giving us the stink eye when it's like, you know, they're maybe fourth or fifth generation fishermen, you know what I mean? Who were born and raised and have a livelihood on this sea. And it's like, you have these, yeah, tourists basically coming down and, and trying to vibe you, you know? And it's like, yeah, if you're going to have that local aspect, then just stay home. You know, it's like you can have that at your home, but not when you leave to go to a different nation, you know? Yeah, totally. I think, you know, your aspect of like the ecological tourism, uh, the community, the history of the land and and going off into these like remote, not visited, not oftenly visited places is um, that's enough, enough kind of reason to justify kind of what you're doing. I don't know. Like I said, I love what you're doing. Um, I just know people out there might be like, oh, he's just trying to capitalize. But uh, I appreciate you. You kind of chiming in on that. So, so yeah, thank you no, for that. of course. Of course. Awesome, man. Well, it's been awesome hearing about what you got going on, your story and uh, everything else. Is there anything else you'd like to share with anybody uh, out there before we uh, end this episode up? Yeah, always remember, yeah, travel mindfully and respectfully you know, and that's it. And try to learn, learn, try to learn a little bit about the places you travel to. You know what I mean? Even like on an overlanding trip, you know, look up like a natural history guide or, you know, something like that at the region you're visiting. You know, I think that's a, it adds so much richness to our travels, right? When we can actually, you know, understand the history of these places we are visiting, whether it be indigenous heritage, geologic, you know, the biologic heritage. I think that that makes our experience come full circle and have a deeper appreciation for our planet, you know? So yeah. Absolutely. Well said. Those are yeah. good final words. <laughs> awesome. Well, on that note, Gabe, thanks so much for joining me, man. We had a great, I had a great time talking to you and oh, I'm yeah. stoked we could finally connect. Uh, I'll put a link in the uh, podcast episode notes to your website, your Instagram and the Land Rover guy. If we ever come across his name or the uh, Toyota, sorry, not Land Rover, the Toyota, uh, Land Cruiser guy. Uh, yeah, yeah, we yeah. Who that yeah, is. Yeah. So all that stuff will be down below in the notes. Hell yeah. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking soon, man. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, man. Sick. All right. Take care. 
you. All right, and that was our awesome conversation with Gabe Arrives out of San Diego, California, owner and operator of Baja Agave Expeditions. Check them out on Instagram, and the website will have those links down below. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in to episode six. I hope you got something from the conversation. I know I did. As always, your support means a ton to me. If you want to go and purchase some stickers, a hoodie, a hat, uh, the link is in the down below in the show notes, also our Instagram page, and all your support is truly meaningful. And lastly, we are looking for potentially a sponsor. If you, if you want to sponsor an episode, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Just shoot me a DM on the Instagram page and we can get something going for that. Young boy, you don't That's about it for today. Hope you guys have a great rest wrong. of your day. Thanks for tuning in. We'll Young talk soon. Take care. So Later. When did you wrong? I got high, high, high. Lord, I got high. I got a bone to pick with you and I'll show you.
have to wash all that money now.